Courtney Siemens' typical workday may look differently than many of ours, but it is her version of a daily grind. We have some pictures. You can go ahead and put the first one up. This is Courtney. Um, so the first, this is just a day in the life of this working young woman. First off is breakfast at a chic restaurant in one of New York City's trendiest neighborhoods. We should have an image of that. It's filled with hip, well-coiffed young people like Courtney, taking uh, lots of carefully set up shots on their phones um, and like perusing all the products offered by the event sponsor, which in this case is Bed Bath & Beyond. Then there's next up is this pop-up shoe store. She heads there to check out the offerings, to try on various styles, to take more pictures, select the shoes that she's gonna take home in exchange for her work. After getting her shoes, Courtney uses the free Uber code that she got from one of her morning events, and she gets a ride to the park to meet her boyfriend on his lunch break. So he can catch some beautiful pics of her in a place where the leaves are particularly nice. And on her way there, she uses her favorite photo editing app to clean up all the pictures she's taken so far, prep them for her Insta story. <clears throat> Later that afternoon, she'll spend time curating all the pics, um, carefully crafting some posts, adding things to her blog and her Instagram story, managing her invoices and appointments before changing outfits to head out for her evening events where she'll see more products, take more pictures, and rub shoulders with others in her industry. So if you haven't figured it out, Courtney is a full-time Instagram influencer. Okay, social media influencers are now an $8 billion industry. Okay, a lot of people are making money with this. Brands give away products or pay celebrities or individuals like Courtney, who just happen to have a lot of followers, um, to share pictures and posts and videos of their products to all of their audience with the hopes that those folks will turn around and buy whatever is in the influencer's feed. Now this field is relatively new. It's one that probably a lot of us couldn't have imagined as like a possible career option growing up. But this rise of social media influencers is really just the latest iteration of a pattern of human behavior that I would say has actually been with us a really long time. It's a pattern that the 20th century scholar and author and Stanford professor Rene Girard, understood and articulated very clearly several decades before influencers like Courtney were actually cultivating followings and getting paid to post on platforms like Instagram. Now, Girard understood these dynamics that fuel the influencer industry, not because he was an early adopter of the internet, not because he worked in the field of advertising or technology, but because through the study of world literature, art, anthropology, ancient myth, and eventually world religions, René Girard developed a particular perspective on what has motivated human beings and their groups throughout history. Instagram's just the latest version. So why am I starting this reflection on influencer Courtney Seaman and academic Rene Girard? I'm starting here because we're beginning a new teaching series today, one that's going to be continuing throughout the whole season of Lent, which officially begins 
during the last week of February, so before the next time we're here, um, and it continues up to Easter Sunday on April 12th. Lent, if you don't know, is traditionally a time in the Christian calendar for intentional spiritual practice and reflection around the earthly journey of Jesus. Inspired by Jesus's 40 days of fasting in the desert near the beginning of his ministry, it's traditionally invited the Jesus follower to enter into spiritual disciplines like fasting and prayer and to consider Jesus's unique journey into the human experience. Lent is a time to ponder the meaning of God becoming flesh, including God experiencing suffering and even death. It's an old story, a story that many of us, whether we've been in church or not, have probably heard throughout our lives. And yet, sometimes old stories, I find, tend to lose their meaning in the repetition. Sometimes their meaning becomes distorted by traditions built upon them or flawed interpretations that become just accepted and ritualized. And when that happens, we might find that the appropriate response is to actually leave some of those old stories behind, recognizing that they no longer bring us help. Right? But other times we find that reading the stories through a new set of lenses, through a new perspective, that might unlock truths in them that we had previously failed to see and bring a new relevance of those stories to our lives and to our time. In the endeavor of faith, I think fresh perspectives can open up deeper understanding and bring new life to our connection with God. Now, I and a number of my clergy, fellow clergy friends who've been thinking and pastoring in this particular moment in time have found the work of this somewhat obscure academic, Rene Girard, to be one of the lenses that is like, we find at least uniquely helpful for understanding how this grand story told through our ancient texts can hold deep meaning and truth for us even now. Girard was concerned with the age-old problems that much of literature center around how do people relate to one another? And how come often when they relate, things go awry? Why does conflict, contentiousness, often disrupt human community? Why does that conflict often even escalate to violence? These are questions that certainly played out through the life of Jesus as well. So this work of Rene Girard is the lens I'm going to invite all of us to kind of see these old stories through in this new season with the hope that all of us might find some fresh relevance and meaning through Lent and beyond. So I'm calling the series Old Stories, New Lenses. Okay, Girard came to develop this theory of how humans behave in relationship to one another. It's a theory that's kind of dense. It's got like multiple linear components. So I, rather than just trying to like overwhelm you with all of it at once, we're just going to take it step by step throughout the series. And my hope is by the end, the whole thing will kind of fit together and make sense. Now, I found this framework so helpful that this isn't the first time I've talked about it here. I've certainly shared insights from Girard's work before, but it's been a little while. So this content, I know, is new to some of you. 
And it's going to be a little bit of review for some of you who've been here a while. But either way, I think it's worth spending time on in this new season. Because truthfully, even though I've been sitting with some of this Gerard stuff for a few years now, uh, it still feels new to me. These insights are still fresh because I am still learning about their implications. So to be clear, I just want to say also from the front, I'm not saying that Gerard's theory of human behavior is flawless or that it's the gospel. It's just a perspective. It's a lens to look through. You can decide if it's a helpful one for you or not. Um, but I'm leading us through this kind of exploration, this Lent, because I hope that at least the conversations we enter into as we consider Girard over the next couple of months will provide some helpful, fresh perspectives on our pursuit of faith, and that those might actually lay a really important foundation for the work I think all of us have to do this year throughout 2020 as people of faith living in a very divisive time. So... With all that named, let's get started. Before we get into the first insight of Gerard we're going to look at today, I want to give you a little more information about who this person is we're going to be considering over the next couple of months. So René Girard was born on Christmas Day, 1923, in Avignon, France. He uh, grew up in France. He was a student in Paris in the mid-1940s. Um, and so he was there studying when Paris was occupied by the Nazis. And that reality of living through the Nazi occupation as a young man would come to shape Girard's work in the future as he saw up close at a formative time in his life the destructive horror of human conflict. After the war ended, he immigrated to the United States and began teaching in university settings, eventually spending most of his career at Stanford. Um, initially, he taught French, then French literature. Eventually, his literary interests um, broadened from there. So Girard was definitely what you might call a generalist in the humanities, studying languages, multiple disciplines, history, anthropology, comparative literature, myth, ancient religion, and so on, as he sought to kind of just better understand people and, in the world. Uh, Girard was not a person of faith. In his early years, he was an atheist. However, as he came to develop this theory of behavior we're going to look at um, and how and looked at these various ancient myths and religious texts, he eventually came to identify as a Christian. He came to Jesus-centered faith because of what he saw as a unique way that the Bible and the stories it told actually resonated with how he was coming to understand the world. So hopefully as we unpack his theory over the next weeks, you'll begin to see why. So today, we're just going to deal with the first step in Girard's theory, like foundational concept. And that step one is to consider the origins of human desire. To consider the origins of human desire. Now most of us think that desire is fairly innate. Is there a way to advance it? It's not working. Yeah. Um, maybe we think, our, and if you're following along with some of the notes, you could fill in these blanks if you want. It's totally up to you. Most of us think desire is innate. Maybe we think our desires are born with us. At the very least, we believe that we have the agency to initiate and to direct them 
as adults, but Gerard actually saw something different. For him, humans came to desire things because they saw others desire them. He saw humans as fundamentally imitative creatures. So according to Gerard, all human desire is actually what he called mimetic desire. Mimetic desire, that just means imitative. We copy. Okay, Gerard didn't initially come to this insight by studying psychology or theology. It was through the study of literature. As he's studying and teaching uh, novelists like Cervantes and Proust and Dostoevsky, he kept noticing this pattern in the characters that he was reading. So Don Quixote wants to live the life of a knight. Why? Because of all of these romances of Amadis de Gaulle that he had read and was starting to emulate. Same for Madame Bovary. She's this woman who becomes enraptured with another kind of life because she reads romance novels. Now, maybe it would be like what we watch on Netflix, right? Desire wasn't direct, it was triangular. Okay, we have this image of kind of what he proposed. The subject, the object, and the model, okay? And he would believe that this happens unconsciously, especially with people close to us in our lives. So we use, we might be the subject, and we use somebody close to us as a model without even realizing we're doing it. Sometimes it would, you would call that the mediator as well. And you begin to dis absorb that person's desires as your own. So you start to imitate the desire, and get, in which case you get the imitated desire for the same object, right? So this is why Courtney has the job she has, right? Because companies tr definitely believe this is true, that they can, it's worth paying $8 billion to people like Courtney because they hope that if you see in her Instagram feed this awesome purse, you will buy it too, that her desire for it will spark your own. Now, psychology has verified Girard's insight, okay? Our minds are wired for imitation. And this in and of itself, to be clear, it's not a bad thing. It's actually how we are wired to relate to one another. We have what's called mirror neurons in our brains, right? And that means that when I raise my hand in the air, there's a part of your brain that knows how to raise its hand in the air that is firing at the same time, okay? If you didn't have an override system, all of you would put your hand up watching me do the same thing. Okay, you do have an override system that tells your mind, okay, I don't actually have to put my hand up, but the part of your brain that is activated when you do, it, it fires, okay? That's how we experience empathy, in which case it's a very good thing. When a person, when you see somebody experiencing pain, often that same pain part of your brain will fire with those mirror neurons. When you see somebody experiencing great joy, you can resonate with it, right? It's a good thing. But in the same way that this part of the way that our brains are wired uh, can help us imitate behavior and resonate with one another's emotions, Girard believed that generally unconsciously, we also imitate one another's desires. So, Girard was looking at literature 
ancient myths, seeing this pattern again and again. But he also noticed that it often seemed hidden from the characters in the stories. They did not recognize this was happening. It wasn't always even made clear to the audience. It's just that he kept noticing the pattern, looking from one story to another. And then Girard finds a foundational myth that seemed to reveal the pattern that had so often been hidden in a unique way. And that was the foundational story of human interaction in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve. So we're going to take a fresh look at that story and see if we can understand something new about it, looking with Gerard's lens. Okay, this is our first old story, new lens. All right, so we're going to pick it up at Genesis 3. You can read it on your sheet or on the screen with me. Now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat from it and you must not touch it or else you will die. Okay, of course, they're talking about the fruit, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had said no to. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man replied, I heard you moving about the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman replied, the serpent tricked me and I ate. We'll stop it there. So Gerard didn't come to this story asking if it was scientifically accurate or historically true. That was not his concern. It's not ours today. For him, this is a classic mythic origin tale, okay, like many ancient mythic tales. There are fantastical elements in myths, like talking animals. There are humans that serve as archetypes. But in this Genesis story, Gerard saw something unique compared to foundational myths from other cultures. Because this story makes clear that this desire for forbidden fruit that both of these garden dwellers experience. It's not an innate desire. Adam and Eve had just been reveling in each other. The man had looked at the first woman and said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and celebrated her. They were in harmony with one another and the divine at peace. And then something shifts. The serpent comes on the scene and draws the attention of the woman to something else. Eve gets her desire from the serpent. 
He's the one that first shows the desire for the fruit. He asks her a question. It's, it's a bit of a trap. It's not factually true what he asks, and she corrects him. She doesn't fall for the trap. But in the interaction, she is still changed by him because she sees in the snake the desire for the fruit. She sees in him the desire to become like God, and that desire becomes her own. Suddenly, she looks at the tree in a different way. It says, when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, was desirable for making one wise, she took some of it and ate it. But it doesn't stop there. The man sees the desire of the woman, and the next thing you know, he's eating it. And when they are caught and God comes on the scene, that triangulation is fully revealed. Adam points to Eve for planting the desire, right? Eve points to the serpent. Their deflection of blame actually highlights the reality of what has taken place. The mimetic desire of Adam and Eve has taken over and it's led to their first tragic consequence, expulsion from the garden for disobeying the creator and trying to become like God. So mimetic desire, at least according to Girard, in and of itself isn't harmful. Okay, it's how we're wired again. It's just part of what connects us powerfully with one another. It's how we work. But mimetic desire can be dangerous in a couple of ways. And the first is what's illustrated here in this Genesis 3 story. Mimetic desire is harmful when it leads us to imitate the desire for something destructive. It's harmful when we copy something that's bad for us, right? When it leads us to imitate the desire for something destructive. If the serpent was simply planting the desire for some other fruit, we would not have had a problem, right? The problem was that Eve and Adam came to desire something that would ultimately harm them. They came to desire this power of the divine. And that meant they could no longer peacefully live as humans in intimate connection with God because they were trying to escape their humanity and become God, right? And so in that way, it was a destructive desire. There's a, a reason that people in recovery addicts, uh, recovering addicts or alcoholics are sometimes told to cut off relationship or at least isolate yourself for a while from the community uh, in which you were using or you were drinking, right? You might be told not to go to any bars for a while because people in recovery understand how this works. When we see others desiring something destructive, it is more likely that that desire will be sparked in us afresh, right? I've been thinking about how, as a parent, I have seen mimetic desire play out with my kids. Because the reality is whether you like it or not, as a parent, um, when your kids are young, you are their primary human model for what it means to be human in all the things. They're imitating you, not just in how they're learning to talk, how they're learning to walk, 
but how they relate and sure what they value right so I was like thinking about it this week and thinking it probably shouldn't be a surprise that Jason and I have raised three kids who all to some degree like music and the arts they like technology and they like cooking um, and all of them could care less about sports <laughs> because we are their parents <laughs> And those are things that are pretty much true for us. Um, they've seen us care about certain things and care less about others, and that that has had an impact on them. But as they age, particularly um, as my eldest son has now become a teenager, I can also see the modeling shifting, right? Jason and I are no longer the ones who fuel mimetic desire in Elliot. Uh, he's much more interested in what his friends are doing, what they're into, right? He's starting to express interests and cultivate uh, concerns based not on what we are doing, but what they are doing, or what some other adults in his life uh, that he's coming to respect, uh, or the YouTubers he watches, what all of those folks are doing, right? They are becoming the new models. And so I find myself a, uh, like a total parenting cliche in some ways, like concerned about what crowd is my kid landing in? Right? Because is he connecting with folks who have desires that, that I want to encourage for him? You know, desires to work hard in school, maybe express yourself creatively, be kind to other kids? Or might he be finding influences in his life that might plant some more destructive desires? Right? That's, I feel like a cliche, kind of worrying about what crowd is my kid landing in. But I think that's part of why, right? We have that. And I feel like it's the reality is my job as a parent is shifting from serving as the model to helping my kids figure out what models are going to be helpful for them, what models are harmful for them to emulate as they grow. Now, some of you might have heard of Peter Thiel. He's one of the original founders of PayPal. He then turned his wealth from that business into the work of venture capital investing. And you could say he's Probably, I don't think it's wrong, to, a stretch to say he's one of the most powerful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Um, but what you might not know is that Peter had studied with Rene Girard at Stanford, and he was profoundly influenced by his work. So when he was given the opportunity to invest in a startup that no one knew anything about, a platform built by some Harvard undergrads uh, that connected people with one another, and let those people share things between them, he immediately understood the power of that idea in a way that perhaps even the founders themselves couldn't appreciate. Because he knew that Facebook would have to be explosive and expansive because he believed what Gerard did, that mimetic desire is a powerful force in the human mind. And no doubt, Peter Thiel thought, if you could find a way to capitalize on that, you'd probably do well for yourself. And I think he probably has. Human de humans desire because they see other humans desire. Sometimes that imitative desire leads us to want things that are ultimately harmful to us. But for Gerard, the imitation of destructive desire isn't the only dangerous consequence that Genesis reveals about this phenomenon. The first marriage, marked essentially by the, the downsides of mimetic desire, gives birth to the first children, 
and they inherit the same tendency, and that leads to another harmful consequence of mimetic desire. So for Girard, these stories are super linked. So we're just going to take a quick moment and look at what happens to Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. All right, picking it up, verse 3 of chapter 4 in Genesis. At the designated time, Cain bought some of the fruit of the ground for an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock, even the fattest of them. And the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but with Cain and his offering, he was not pleased. So Cain became very angry, and his expression was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your expression downcast? Is it not true that if you do what is right, you will be fine? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So now you are banished from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So once again, just verses after Adam and Eve Mimetic desire takes hold in the children's story. And again, there are devastating consequences. If Adam and Eve reveals the way mimetic desire can lead to destructive desire, Cain and Abel show what I think Gerard finds to be another horrible consequence. And that's that mimetic desire becomes toxic when it leads to envy and rivalry. It becomes toxic when it leads to envy and rivalry. You know, Girard believed that this was the cause of much of human conflict. It's not that humans are too different and they want different things and so they fight. It's that they're too similar and they want the same things and so they fight. And when there's a perceived scarcity of that thing that multiple humans want, envy and rivalry take hold, escalate, and often leads to violence. So in the story... Cain becomes envious because his brother has God's favor. Now that's something it's not clear he cared about until he sees his brother go above and beyond, bringing the very best sacrifice he can bring to honor the divine. And when that effort earns special praise from God, all of a sudden jealousy and envy flare up in Cain. And God recognizes this dangerous mimetic power, whispering, to Cain, in the same way a serpent had whispered to his mom. The divine tries to warn him. Sin is crouching at the door. You got it. It's trying to dominate you. You must subdue it. You must let go of this rivalry. It's not good for you. It's not a healthy way of relating. It's going to conquer you if you don't get it under control. But Cain ignores the warning. Instead of trying to turn from his rivalrous desire, instead of just acknowledging it and allowing it to become productive, maybe saying like, oh, how can I offer a better sacrifice this time, right? Instead, he becomes focused on tearing down his rival. Victory for Cain isn't subduing his own ego. It's subduing his brother. And because of that, we have the first death in the Bible a murder between brothers. 
So in two chapters of Genesis, we've seen this remarkable arc. Human beings created, living in perfect harmony with one another and with God until this mimetic desire lures them into destructive behavior and cuts off their intimate communion with the divine. And then we see the first human beings bring forth life. That's what Eve's name means, that she brings forth life, gives birth to the first instance, infants, and then just a couple verses later, those babies are young men. They become envious and rivalrous with one another in a way that demonstrates that human beings can not only create life, but they can end it, right? For Rene Girard, this is the lens to read these old stories through. They are stories that warn us of the power of our innate capacity to mimic one another's desires and allow those desires to control us to devastating ends. That feels a little like, oh, <laughs> to me. It might feel that way to you. But there's one last insight from Gerard on these founding myths that I think is the seed of hope, and that's the little seed of hope I'm going to leave you with today. As, and we'll explore it more deeply in the weeks to come. And the hope from these early stories is actually this, that God hears the cry of the victim who is brought down by mimetic rivalry, and stands with the one who's been oppressed. God hears the cry of the victim who is brought down by mimetic rivalry and stands with the one who has been oppressed. Gerard noticed that the ancient Hebrew people were not the only ones to tell founding stories about brothers who fought to the death. Okay, that storyline appears in other founding myths of other cultures too. And perhaps the most notable comparison comes from ancient Rome, the story of Romulus and Remus. And in that story, we meet Romulus and Remus, these twin brothers descended from a woman who had mated with the god Mars. And as young men, these young men have this big dispute. They want to build a great city, and they're having a fight over which hill to build it on. And so they decide they're going to have this contest to decide this argument, to see uh, which of them the gods approve of more. And as they have this contest to see who does, do the gods respond to better, who gets more divine approval, it looks like the winner is uh, Remus. Remus seems to win. He has more divine approval show up for him. And when that happens, Romulus becomes enraged and kills him. And he claims victory, and he establishes the great city on the hill that he wanted. He wins. He's the last brother standing. And the city of Rome is established in his name, Romulus. And as that story is told in Roman culture, Romulus is celebrated as the powerful victor the founder of Rome. There's little concern shown for the brother who was killed other than the part he played as the obstacle to the hero Romulus. But Gerard read that Roman story and others like it next to the Bible and noticed a powerful difference. Cain is not celebrated in Genesis for what he does. He's not made a conquering hero. He is banished. 
God takes the side of the unjustly killed. God hears the cry of the victim. There is a seed of hope. From the ground, God hears the blood crying out. There, even if there is some truth in this idea that our nature gives us a propensity for violence, the hope is that we are connecting with a God who is not blind to oppression. And that God wants more for us. In the same way that that God had invited Cain to resist his powerful rivalrous desire. In that same way, God invited Adam and Eve just to live, not longing for things that would ultimately undo them. We too have invitations into a different way of being. Invitations that I think are going to become more clear as we look at the stories in the future centering on the life of Jesus. So as we end today, what insights can we take with us in the coming weeks from this little introduction to Gerard? Particularly as Lent gets underway on Ash Wednesday. I'm going to end by just giving us a couple of suggestions of what the divine might be inviting us into in the weeks to come. And the first suggestion is this. Perhaps we could take an influence inventory. Perhaps we could be taking an influence inventory. Let's try to become more aware of what's happening. Spend some time considering what are some of the main drivers of desire in your life? Do you find yourself clicking through those ads that pop up in your Facebook feed or some other website you go to? Are there certain day, like times of day or night that you find yourself a little more prone to like look at things or buy things that you wouldn't normally feel very tempted to do? Are there certain people that you spend time with and when you're around them, you recognize like more feelings of envy and rivalry, kind of conscious? What would it mean for us to become more aware of those dynamics? And perhaps start to entertain some alternative responses that we can engage in if we sensed mimetic desire was tempting us into something harmful. A lot of the danger, I think Gerard would say, of mimetic desire is that we're unaware of it. So perhaps this is a starting place, is to just become more aware of what influences us and what causes us to do what we do. The second invitation is to perhaps consider a fast this Lent that might help you release toxic mimetic desire. Consider a fast this Lent that might help you release the toxics, the bad side of mimetic desire. Okay, so fasting is an ancient practice in the season of Lent. Lots of people from lots of different Christian traditions do it. It can mean fasting from certain foods. Some people give up meat or alcohol or sweets during the roughly six weeks between Ash Wednesday to Easter. Um, the, under the Lenten fast tradition, generally fasts are allowed to be broken on Sunday, so they don't quite count in the six weeks, which is why it's not exactly six weeks between Wednesday and Easter. If you're confused about that, you can talk to me later. I'll try to make it clear. Um, so you could do that. 
you could fast from one of those things. If you if that's meaningful to you, if you like really find it helpful to, you know, not eat sweets during Lent, uh, and you want to do that, great. Um, perhaps as you do, maybe you allow your recognition that you'd really, really like some chocolate tonight um, to consider why that is. When you have that moment um, where you're struggling, allow that to be uh, an opportunity to pray, an opportunity to be mindful about where is this desire coming from, and invite God to connect with you in that place where you feel like you're struggling. But you could also consider taking a six-week break from something like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or some podcast. Whatever it is that might be a place where you recognize mimetic desire is super activated for you, even if the desires aren't particularly bad, sometimes it can just be helpful to like ugh, take a break so that we can check in more with our own inner selves, our own spirits, our own connection with the divine, and not be kind of constantly triggered by those external forces. So something to consider. Please remember, we are not a very like prescriptive religious, you got to do this bunch. So this is something, not something I'm guilting anyone into. Uh, I'm only inviting you to consider a fast if you would find it helpful for this season, for disconnecting from some things so you can connect more with God. So as we end, I just want to end with this. I want to end with an encouragement to remember that all of us are human. We are profoundly relational. And yes, I think there is some truth that we have the capacity for conflict, for, for destruction, but we also have the capacity for new life. We have the capacity to learn from one another in good ways, to empathize with one another, to build each other up. We have the capacity to emulate the best in one another, to allow each other to spur us on to beauty and truth and love, to have mimetic desire that is positive that plants in us good things. Our hope is in the truth that community doesn't need to be marked by conflict. It can be also marked by profound connection and care. And maybe as we live into embodying that, we will find communion not only with one another, but also with the God who lives with, with and in each of us. Amen.